Well, I am glad to be here. Uh, it is a Lord's mercy that I get to be here to teach this passage with you all. Um, I've had an interesting week, especially in light of the text that we're going to study today. We're going to study Exodus 28 and 29, and I'm going to save 31 uh, for lesson 10, where I'll teach again, picking up on the Sabbath. So don't worry about that. We'll get to that in two weeks. Um, but in light of our text today on the role of the high priest in the establishment of the Levitical priesthood, um, I have just found myself with kind of ironic moments uh, throughout my week. I met with one of my mentors who has been just such a godly influence in my life, and I met with him kind of like just telling him everything that's going on in my life with Lyme disease and how hard it is to work and and I want to do work, but I can't, and I can't think, and I'm losing my brain. And I was like, what should I do? He was like, you know, I don't know. And I mean, I left encouraged because we prayed together, and his, his presence is so refreshing. But the, at the end of that day, I thought, man, I was looking to him to try to kind of mediate, you know, what's God's will and presence to me, when really I went to sleep that night thinking, I just need Jesus. And then I had a doctor's appointment where I found all these new symptoms. I'm explaining to her. My eyes have been swollen. They look like little slits, and I've been struggling with vision. And I was like, what are we going to do? She's like, mm, I mean, one, you need to quit researching so much. But other than that, other than that, she said, this is, this is Lyme disease. I, we're kind of right on track. We're just going to stay with the same thing. And I went to bed with that night thinking, man, I just need Jesus. And then yesterday, to be honest, as I worked through the homework, I just, I wrestled with feeling kind of a sense that I am supposed to be the high priest to people, that I am supposed to bear people's burdens. And I kind of felt the crushing weight of that feeling like, Lord, I can't mediate people's sin. I can't bring people into your presence. I, I was confronted with my own sin and my own selfishness. And so I was having a conversation with Neil. He got home. He was out of town this week. And I was telling him, my frustration with the homework that wasn't, you know, I felt like maybe wasn't taking us exactly to Jesus. And I was frustrated with myself because my own sin was keeping me from going to Jesus. And I was frustrated because my mentor and my doctor didn't, you know, couldn't mediate God's presence to me. And in true Neil-like fashion, he said, oh, so gently. I mean, Whitney, you're talking about how you feel like the homework needs to go to Jesus and you need to go to Jesus. But the one thing you're really not doing is just going to Jesus. And now luckily, I was able to capture the exact face I gave to him in that moment and this picture of my uh, goddaughter, my namesake, Grace. <laughs> Can you guys see that? I get, Last night he said, I mean, I think what you need to do is just go to Jesus. And I said... I gave him the stink eye. But of course, I mean, let's be honest, that's just an excuse, but that's funny. Uh, the thing was, he was so right. At the end of the day, I don't know what you're going through this week, whether you're struggling with health or looking for someone for guidance, or if you're struggling with insecurity or shame, or you're just frantic with the day-to-day -day stuff of life, or if you feel like you are burdened with other people's sin and you don't know how to atone for their sin or even to atone for your own sin. 
what you need is you need to go to Jesus. And praise God that our text today, Exodus 28 and 29, is going to do exactly that. When read, interpreted, and applied correctly, what it does, what it's meant to do is actually take us to Jesus, our great high priest. And so I'm going to do something a little different. I'm not going to do a normal exposition where we go verse by verse or paragraph through, by paragraph through this text. I'm instead going to give you just kind of the, the big idea of these two chapters. And then we're just going to dip down in little places and see how this is meant to point to Jesus and then how it applies to our lives today. Does that sound good? Okay. So we've done so many observations in our homework, and I think that was really the value of the homework, was getting us to slow down and observe all these little details. But now we need to put it back together, or we're going to miss the forest for the trees. So here's a big idea for chapters 28 through 29. God makes provision for his people to dwell with him through the choosing, clothing, and consecration of the priest. God makes provision for his people to dwell with him through the choosing, clothing, and consecration of the priest. Now, the key here, the key here really is God's presence and the idea of of God's people dwelling in God's presence. And all the details of the garments um, and the, the sacrifices, those are all important details, but they are moving us towards a point. And the point of all the details actually crescendos at the end of chapter 29 and verses 45 through 46. When he gets done explaining all these different details of the garments and the sin offerings and establishing the priest, he says in verse 45, I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. Notice in verse 45 and in 46, it says, I will dwell among the people of Israel. And then again, he says, I I did this, that I might dwell among them. So all those details that we observed is moving towards this point of that God is going to make provision, first through the tabernacle, which is what we looked through with Adrian a couple weeks ago, And then also through the establishment of the Levitical priesthood, specifically the high priest, Aaron the high priest, God's going to make provision to dwell with his people. And and we're going to see here in chapters 28 through 29 that the author, author goes to great detail explaining the choosing, the clothing, and the consecration of the priest all so that we understand when it's all said and done, we end up having this tent, this tabernacle, That is a sacred space where God will dwell. This is the place where heaven meets earth, where God comes down to dwell with his people. But then within that, we're going to have the set apart, um, chosen, consecrated priesthood who they, they are going to act as God's representatives to stand in the gap between Israel and God. And they're going to bring Israel symbolically before God and then bring God's presence back symbolically to the people of Israel. And that's how through mediation, that's what mediation is, they're going to dwell with God. Does that all make sense? So I'm going to give you two observations before we then start moving towards Christ. In, in, In chapter 28, the first observation I want you to understand is that in the Bible, clothing is often used symbolically to express outwardly 
who the person is or should be, okay? So clothing, to be clothed with something in the Bible is to express the, in, the internal, to be clothed externally is to express internally what the person is or at least what the person should be. So what's happening in 28 is that God chooses, and that's important, God chooses Aaron and his sons to serve as priests. But he's going to need to clothe them with sacred garments to set them apart as his representative. They themselves are human. So they are sinful. They, they themselves inwardly have black hearts just like all of us. They have fallen hearts, depraved hearts just like all of us. But by putting on these clothes, God was choosing to symbolically set them apart as holy and clean that they might be able to mediate God's presence. So that's what chapter 28 is all about. He's, he's setting them apart by clothing the royal priesthood. Um, you know, just as the tabernacle is going to be a holy space, so the priest will be set apart as holy. Uh, and then as they are clothed with these sacred garments, the, the work that they're going to do in chapter 8, what's so important is that they're going to, um, specifically the high priest that focuses on him, he's going to bear the people on his heart before the Lord. Did you all pick that up? The key, there was four key verses repeated that helped us understand once clothed with sacred garments, the work of the priest will be to bear the people on their hearts before the Lord. Verse 12 says, And Aaron shall bear their names before the Lord on his two shoulders for remembrance. Verse 29 says, So Aaron shall bear the names of the sons of Israel in the breastplate of judgment on his heart. Verse 30, Thus Aaron shall bear the judgment of the people in Israel on his heart before the Lord regularly. And verse 38, and Aaron shall bear any guilt from the holy things that the people of Israel consecrate as their holy gifts. So we've dissected this text, but when we put it back together, we see that Aaron is chosen and clothed as the high priest who symbolically brings humanity, Israel, God's people on his heart before the Lord so that they could dwell in his presence. That's observation one, so tuck that away, right? Are you guys percolating? We know where this is going to go. You know I'm going to get it to Hebrews before this is all said and done. Okay, so the second observation from chapter 29 is that in the Bible, blood sacrifices cleanse a person and make atonement for sin. In the Bible, blood sacrifices cleanse a person and make atonement for sin. You might say, yeah, I, I know that, Whitney, but why is that? You know what I love? I love this answer, because God says so. That's why. That's, that's the system God put in place in Leviticus 17, 11. He says, for the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. So a holy God wanted to be able to dwell with his people, so what he did is he chose a, a, a system to put into place which would atone for sin until the time of, of um, the Messiah's coming, who would himself atone for sin. And that is by blood. So to, so to atone for sin, there has to be blood. And when we get to 29, we see that Aaron's sons have to be cleansed and forgiven of their own sin before they can actually bring the Israelites' sin before God. Right? Because, again, we go back to, yes, they've been chosen, but they're human. And what is the one thing that every human that has ever lived apart from Jesus have in common? Sin. 
I don't think they had taxes back then. I don't know, maybe death and taxes, but sin. We have sin in common. And so they have to do this. Now, this is a natural, natural sequence of, it, of events. It starts with preparation, which involves washing and then putting on the sacred garments and then being anointed. And then it moves to the sacrifices for the priesthood, which we looked at. It was the bull for the sin offering, the ram for the burnt offerings, and another ram for the wave, peace, and consecration offering. I don't have time to break those down. It's fascinating. I wish I could. I don't. The one thing I do want to note is that in the homework, um, she had four. And really, biblically speaking, the, the wave and the peace and the consecration offering are all involved as one offering. So there was three really there that was, was happening. And so, and then, you know, we also have the stuff about the blood sacrifice. Blood's applied to the ear and the hand. Uh, what was the ear, the hand, and the toe. Yes, the toe. You know, this is just very unnatural to us. I haven't, you know, maybe actually in places I've gone overseas, there's a much more bloody cultures. I'm not going to get into it. But here, I don't, you know, we don't spill out blood and put it on our ears and toes and nose and no no so the ear hand and toe but really what seems weird to us was just that this is expressing the totality of the consecration of the priest these priests are set apart their entire person is set apart unto god's purposes and will everything they do every everything they hear everything the way they serve where they walk how they live is to be separated unto god's purposes does that make sense so it might seem weird to us, but that's the point. And so when all of this is completed, the high priest and priestly line would be ready to serve in the tabernacle, bear the people on their hearts before the Lord so that the people could enjoy God's presence. That's what 28 and 29 is about. Are we all there? Okay. Just let it sink in so I can take a drink of water really quick. So, before we can make any personal application of this text. We have to do what um, we so affectionately call around here traveling through the cross. We cannot read and apply this text as if we were the Israelites who just settled into the promised land reading the scroll that Moses wrote on Exodus. And the reason we can't is because at this stage in redemption, we have much more information than they have. We have, we, have the, we have actually moved quite far in, in redemptive history, not only to see the arrival of the Messiah, but his life, death, resurrection, his ascension, the outpouring of the Spirit. And we're actually in the very last stage of redemptive history known as the last ages. We're in the church age. We're in the last days. So we have to understand this passage in light of all of the revelation we now have. Does that make sense? So we're on this side of the cross. So we need to travel through the cross and then apply this. I think understanding that is, is going to help us make meaningful and life-giving application. I think apart from that, it's going to be hard to make legitimate um, and biblical applications. And, and not only that, but apart from that, it's going to be hard to make truly Christian, that is Christ-centered application. So we travel through the cross. And when we do that, we're going to understand, and I'm going to show you more specifically, we're going to understand that these chapters are meant to be 
types or shadows of the high priest to come, who would be chosen by God, clothed with righteousness, and consecrated unto him. That's what this is about. And not only that, but it's going to be the high priest who then is going to prepare to bear humanity on his heart through his own life substitute. He's going to give his own blood. He's not only going to be the high priest, but he's going to be the substitute. We're going to see this in a moment. So that humanity could once again dwell with God, which is again the point of chapter 29, which is the point of Exodus, which is the point of the tabernacle, which is the point of the whole Bible. How can sinful human beings dwell with a holy God? Through the work of our high priest. So this text is not, I I, I know this might go without saying, but I'm going to go and say it. This is not ultimately, and it's okay. I'm so glad you worked through the homework. I worked through all of them. I pray that you all had really, really fruitful discussion. But I do want to say, this text is not about us becoming or taking or emulating the role of a high priest so that we can stand out in the world. That's, That's not what this text is about. This text is not about being mindful of our community, though that's a good Christian application in general. We should be mindful of our community. But not only that, this text is certainly not about us as priests um, bearing the sins of others. Now you'd say, well, Whitney, what about, what about the New Testament? We're to bear one another's burdens. Yes, yes, yes. That is biblical. We are to bear one another's burdens. And yes, we're going to get to the fact that we are actually a priesthood of believers. But in this passage, we are talking about bearing burdens in a priestly manner. We're talking about bearing sins so that we can enter God's presence. That is not something you or I can do. And if we try, and often we don't say it, but functionally we do try to bear other people's burdens and bear their sins. We can't. We will fail to be their high priest. And we will end up frustrated, and they will end up frustrated. Um, yeah. Like me last night. You'll end up like me last night. That's what you'll be if you do this. So, so how can we do this? How can we do this? Well, let's start tracing it through. Let's start tracing it through the Old Testament and get to the New Testament and see how we can understand this passage better. Look at, I'm going to go do a couple because they're so important and that way you can write them down. I put them up here. And I'm not going to read all of them, but I want you to at least have them. These are just a few. There's so many connections we can make. But I just want to show you one way we can make connections. Right now, we are looking for someone, uh, a a Savior, Messiah-like figure, who could stand in the gap between God and man, right, to to draw man back into God's presence. And he needs to be clothed with garments. Okay, so we're thinking of the priest, clothed with garments of righteousness. He needs to be consecrated unto the Lord. So we're thinking through all of these things. And we start moving then into the Old Testament. We start moving into like Isaiah 11. Isaiah 11 is about the, um, the shoot from the stump of Jesse. It's about the, 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 the king who's going to come from the line of David. And look in verse 5 what it says. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist. And faithfulness, the belt of his loins. This is talking about the Messiah. So this is interesting. The Messiah is going to come, and he's actually going to already be clothed in righteousness and faithfulness. And then you get into Isaiah 59. Oh, sorry, I didn't even have it there for you. 
There's that. Now Isaiah 59. And, and the Lord is, Yahweh's distressed because um, humanity is so sinful. It says there's no justice. And he saw that there was no man. This is interesting in light of the establishment of the high priest, right? Because that was his job to mediate between God and man. But in Isaiah 59, God saw that there was no man who could intercede. And so he decided that his own arm was going to bring salvation and his righteousness uphold him. And so somehow God himself is going to put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head and put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrap himself in zeal as a cloak. So somehow God is going to step into the role that no man could do. And when he does step into that role, we don't understand yet how, when he steps into that role, he is going to be wrapped in garments. Israelites' minds would be percolating, right? They're thinking, they're thinking uh, Exodus 28. He's going to be wrapped in garments of righteousness and salvation, vengeance for clothing. And then Isaiah 61 you really can think about Isaiah as like the gospel according to Isaiah. It's so powerful. It's so powerful. Isaiah 61, again, is talking about the Messiah. And it says that he's going to rejoice in the Lord and exult in his God because God has clothed him with garments of salvation, with covered him with robes of righteousness. Now, this text is often applied to believers today, and I believe that's appropriate if first applied to the Messiah, and then in the Messiah, we get what the robes that he has. But do you see, so all throughout the Old Testament, we're, we're seeing that this, so there's going to become a savior, Messiah-like figure, who is clothed with righteousness, who's clothed with salvation. He doesn't need, ex, he doesn't need to put on external garments because he is righteous. And we think, who could that be? Who could that be? And no one comes, and no one comes, and no one comes. And then we get to um, Hebrews 7, 26. Speaking of Jesus, it says, For it is indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest that is Jesus, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. So Jesus comes in as the great high priest who, yes, is like Aaron because he's human. He took on humanity. He's able to sympathize and empathize with our weaknesses and our struggles and our sins. But he is greater than Aaron in that he doesn't have to put on external sacred garments. He himself is righteous. He is sinless. He is perfect. He comes not putting on garments. He comes as the one who is his very essence. Jesus' very essence is righteousness, faithfulness, holiness. He's unstained. He's separated from sinners. So, I mean, it's it's so clear that that coming out of Exodus 28, you get to Hebrews uh, 7, and you're just like, oh, yeah. This is who Aaron was pointing towards. Aaron was a type, but there was one to come who'd be greater than Aaron. And, and then, that's, that's kind of 28, but then when we think about 29, how they had to offer sacrifices for themselves, we can see when we get to the book of Hebrews, there's several Old Testament connections, but I'm going to take us straight to the book of Hebrews because I do want us to do some application. Um, we see that Jesus, the high priest, is like Aaron, like I said, able to sympathize with our weaknesses, but unlike Aaron and unlike all of humanity, He's the only one who doesn't have to offer sacrifices for his own sin. In fact, as the spotless, sinless one, he is going to offer his own body as the sinless substitute 
for the sins of the world. These are the verses I want you to see in Hebrews. I put them up here because it's too rich to miss. And, and perhaps you can write them down and meditate on them in your time this week coming out of this homework. But in Hebrews 4, we're, we're looking at all the ways that Jesus is greater than Aaron in the book of Hebrews. And it says, look at verse 15, for we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then draw um, with, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Here again, I, I already read 26, but look at 27. Jesus, he has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily for his own sins and then for those of the people. That's exactly what Exodus 29 was doing. Since, this, since, um, since he did this once and for all when he offered up himself. And then in, in Hebrews 10, the author gives us really the interpretive key on how to understand Exodus 28 and 29. It says, For since the law was but a shadow of the things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered, Every year, make perfect those who draw near. And it goes on to talk about how the sacrificial system was just put in place for a time, waiting until Jesus. But then verse 5 and 7 really struck me in light of this idea that the priest had to be wholly consecrated unto the Lord. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. And burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will. Jesus comes. Jesus comes as the true high priest, chosen by God, clothed with his own righteousness, who came not to offer sacrifices for his own sin, but to offer his perfect sinless life for the sins of others so that all who repent and believe in him can enjoy access to the presence of God. That's what Jesus does. And that's what all of this is pointing towards. So one application, before we even think through personal application, is to pause and just take in Jesus. You're like, this is so Whitney. Classic Whitney. But this is really the point of the... I mean, what, what is the point of Exodus 28 for us today? It's to point us towards Jesus. So how do we apply this text? We pause and consider the work of Jesus. No one else could have done what he did. I mean, it's, it's so amazing to meditate on and think about how he could come as both human and God, how he could be both sinless but then offer himself as, as the sinless sacrifice, that he could draw a man and God together in the way that he did, that he could, so to speak, stand in the gap, putting one hand on God and one hand on humanity. I mean, no one else could have done that but Jesus so part of the application day is just to, to feel alive, to feel excited, to feel joyful. One thing I've been doing throughout the week, just practically in my quiet time, is I've just been listening and worshiping to really Christ-centered songs, like All Glory Be to Christ. If you know me, you know that's like a favorite. As soon as I hear that song, I'm like, it's like I'll be in the shower and it's like, oh, if that song's on. But that or In Christ Alone or these, just these rich songs about the work of Jesus. This text is meant to point us to Jesus. Like I said, we need 
Jesus more than we need anyone or anything else. We need to be reconciled to God, to be in God's presence with our creator, and that only comes through Jesus. So we need Jesus. We pause and we just meditate on him. We exalt him, we praise him, we think on him, we talk about him, we savor him. But I know for those of you out there, I always get, whenever I do an exposition like this or a talk like this, people say, yeah, but practically, Whitney, I mean, practically, what do you mean? You know, like, I'm busy, I'm not doing this all the time in the shower. You're like, I barely get to take a shower, I have five kids, Whitney. And so, you know, what are some, just some ways we can apply this text? Well, Hebrews 10 goes on to, I think, tell us. In Hebrews 10, 19, oh man, I wasn't going to read it, but I'm just going to. It's so good. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, remember, it has to be blood, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near, draw near to what? Draw near to God, draw, be in his presence with uh, uh, with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. How does this text apply to us? Well, Jesus' priestly works makes it possible to dwell in the presence of a holy God. So, so what do we do on bad days and on bad weeks and when everyone has failed us and when uh, you drop, like me, a whole cup of coffee on your computer this morning, and you're running around, and, uh, you know, nothing's working, and life is, does anyone here just, life just doesn't work for me. I don't know, maybe it's just me, but life just doesn't work. I mean, what do you do? You, you draw near to God. You, you, you go to God knowing that you can enjoy his presence through the mediation of Jesus. You can be at home in God's presence. With, with a messy house and um, sin, still battling sin and temptation, with kids that don't comply, uh, with, with parents who, who are wearing you out, with a heart that's aching, with a brokenness uh, you're dealing with in your relationships, what do you do? You go to the safest place in all the world. You can be always eternally in God's presence. It is, he is home to you. So many of us don't think of God's presence that way. We think like, we got to do good enough. And then at the end of the day, what I do is I lay down and I, I mentally go through everything I did. And then I decide if I have a divine frown or divine smile stamped over me. Does anyone else do that? You don't know. You, do, you know, you think through the day and you think, okay, is God happy or is God mad? This tells us that on your good days and your bad days, when you do so much for God, when you can't do anything for God, through Jesus' mediation, you can feel at home, safe, protected, welcome into the presence of God. Never, never being afraid that he's going to take that from you, never being afraid that he's going to smite you. Notice that it says, with full assurance, with a true heart and full assurance of faith, you always are in the presence of God if you have repented of sin and looked in faith towards Jesus Christ. Not only that, uh, Jesus' priestly work, this is the second thing, cleanses you and clothes you with garments of righteousness. All of those who are in him are now clothed with clean 
pure linen. We're washed. You know how I said the Messiah, we saw those texts where he's clothed with righteousness, he's clothed with faithfulness? And all of us know just even by experience, not even talking about the biblical data, but by experience, we know that we aren't clean. Our sin makes us feel dirty. Others' sin against us makes us feel dirty. The brokenness of this world, the suffering, the weaknesses, it all makes us feel jagged and unhuman and, and dirty, and it's, it's confusing. But the Messiah comes, and what he does is when we believe in Jesus and repent of sin and look towards him, we actually become in him. This is so hard to explain, but and then through that spiritual union with Christ, he puts on garments of righteousness. Though we have no righteousness of our own, he puts on garments of righteousness. And the way the Father sees us is the way he sees his son, Jesus, Messiah, And we would never doubt that Jesus is pure and white and clean. And yet, for those of us who are in him, believers who are in him, so often we struggle to understand that. We struggle to understand that we can come before God. We we don't have confidence. We don't go with full assurance of faith. But the author of Hebrews is saying, because of Jesus, we actually put on his garments of righteousness, and we go before the Father in his presence as, as the Son does, freely, as the Son does. That is crazy. This is crazy. I've been trying to figure out our spiritual union with Jesus. John Calvin calls it that mystical union. I can't get my head around it. Somehow we are actually in the Son in such a way that everything in his life and death and resurrection is all credited to us. And God sees us. God sees us as righteous, just like the Son. Oh, that makes me feel like I can sleep tonight or maybe today. Sometimes I go to bed really early. (laughs) Finally, Jesus' priestly work, and I'm not going to go into this a ton, but it is worth exploring. Jesus' priestly work makes us a priesthood of believers. That's where you get into 1 Peter 2, 9 through 10. And we did look at that in the homework. But in, those of us who are in him now become a kingdom of priests. So what does that mean? That means that we carry out Jesus' mission. It means we go out and tell the world about our great high priest. Tell the world about Jesus who died for their sins and offers new life in Christ if you repent of sin and and trust in him. It doesn't mean that we go out trying to bear the sins of the world. That's where I think there needed to be some clarity. As now we are in Christ, we are a priesthood of believers, but we do not, we're not a priesthood in the sin-bearing atoning work. That's not our work. Our work is to go out and to share that work. We go out proclaiming and showing and shining the way Israel was supposed to but failed to do about the goodness of our God, about redemption that comes through Christ. We, we are ministers of reconciliation, as Paul says, but we are not doing priestly work in, in an atoning sense. We are going out as mediators or, or, or uh, proclaimers of this new covenant, but all of it is to point to Jesus, sharing that about Jesus as we go out. So our work uh, of, of the priesthood is, is pointing to Jesus, the high priest. It's not trying to be the high priest. Now, all of those could be teased out. And because we don't have time, I just prayed that God's spirit working through God's word would personally and specifically do really neat applications in all of your hearts. I just had, we just looked at a big, we pulled up today and looked at how this drives us to Jesus.
I love how the Gospel Transformation Bible applies the content in chapters 28 and 29. I'll close with this. It says, As those who participate in Jesus' bloody sacrifice by faith, we are washed clean, clothed, and anointed to serve in his name, consecrated to him a kingdom of priests. And this morning, as I was reading a prayer from the Valley of Vision, I love that my prayer today was so appropriate, was, For all my mercies come through Christ, who has designed, purchased, promised, affected them. How sweet it is to be near to him. The lamb filled with holy affections. All of our mercies come through Christ. And so that's why, whether we're in Exodus 28 and 29 or Hebrews 6, 7, 8, we know that every mercy comes through Christ, particularly that of dwelling in God's presence. That is a mercy that only comes through Christ. And so this morning, I just leave you with that prayer. All of our mercies come through Christ. How sweet it is to be near to him, the lamb filled with holy affections. Amen? Amen.